We are going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 11 through 14. And I want to speak for just a little while on seeking the lost, seeking the lost. Matthew, chapter 18, verses 11 through 14. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. It seems as if the Lord is desirous of me to continue a theme of really about evangelism, winning the lost, and it is so important. Uh, we can never really hear the gospel message too much. As we talked about last week, the gospel is the power of God to salvation, and so what you are hearing today is the power of God. Matthew chapter 18, verses 11 through 14. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that none of these little ones should perish. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what the Bible tells us. That is His purpose, His design, His plan. That's why Jesus came to this earth. But sometimes Jesus' disciples just didn't get it. How many ever felt like you just didn't get it? They were guilty of that, and sometimes we are guilty of just not getting what the Lord wants us to get. And so I, I believe that at times we need to look at our motivation, and we need to look at our focus and understand, and maybe if we are not lined up with what the Lord is focused upon and what the Lord is motivated by, then we need to change that. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing in this passage, is he was telling his disciples what the most important thing was. So if we look at our motivation, I think it would be healthy for us to look just for a little while at chapter 17, which is the chapter prior to this. And we see the disciples are in a circumstance, in a situation. Jesus has gone off with his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and he is on the mountaintop. And we know that he is transfigured there. His countenance changes, and, and those three see Jesus for who he is. But down away from the mountain are nine disciples without Jesus. Now, you're already in trouble if you're without Jesus. Amen? They're without Jesus, but Jesus had sent them there. And there is a man who comes to them who has a son who is in a very bad situation. He is possessed by a demon, and this demon causes him to have epileptic seizures and to be cast into both the fire and into the water. So this young boy is in a desperate situation. And this man comes with his son to the disciples and said, Can you heal him? Would you heal him? Would you pray for him? 
And I imagine the Bible doesn't really go into all of the details, but I imagine that the disciples are just praying with all of their might, that they are trying to cast this demon out, that they're trying to uh, relieve this young man of his uh, disastrous circumstances and situations, but they could not. Now, that's a familiar situation. Have you ever prayed for someone and they did not get better. They were sick and they stayed sick. They were in a bad situation and they stayed in a bad situation. Now, I don't know about you, but I've prayed for people in that, and it's a very humbling situation. It causes you to understand that the power is not in you, it's not of you, but it is inside of you, and that God is in control of every situation. And so as we look at this, uh, one would think that the disciples would be humbled by this situation. And then just a little while longer in chapter 17, Jesus begins to describe to his disciples that they, uh, those people that were following Jesus, were going to have him crucified that he would die on the cross, but not to worry that he would resurrect in three days. So this is an interesting situation, and we see that they should have been humbled by the situation of not being able to relieve the boy. They should have understood uh, the desperation of the hour and understood how great Jesus was that he was going to lay down his life. Yet we see at the beginning of chapter 18, that they ask him, I think they had the audacity to ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom? I mean, here is the man, Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the victorious one, all of those names that we know about Jesus, and he's telling them that he's going to die for the sins of the world, yet his disciples, help me out, are saying, "How? who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Well, it ought to be obvious that he is. And so we see that Jesus loves word pictures. And he brings a little child out of the crowd that is following him. And he brings him to the front and he shows the people and he tells them, if you're not like this little child, in other words, if you don't come to God in a humble attitude, in a humble atmosphere, not thinking that you are the greatest, but that God is the greatest. If you don't come to the Father in this way, then you can't even come into the kingdom at all let alone be the greatest in the kingdom. So we must come to the Lord seeking Him, understanding that He is God, that He sits on the platform, that He is on the throne, that He is the King and the Lord of lords, that He is in charge. And we must come to the Lord knowing that He is able to do what we have asked Him to do, but He is God and He's in control. He's God. Here is the situation. He tells them, unless you turn and become like this child. You see, to turn means to repent. 
to change your ways, to uh, do an about face. It, it means that you're no longer walking down the same old path of sin and shame and suffering that you were, but you have turned to God and you are walking after Him and you are following. That's why we're called followers of Christ. You're following after Him. So we must turn and become like this little child. We can't even enter the kingdom. What was Jesus pointing out to his disciples? He was saying, you have the wrong motivation. You've been following me all of this time, and yet your motivation is upon you. Look at your neighbor and tell him it's not all about you. Now, it's all right if you turn to, to, to the neighbor again and say, it's not about you either. You see, it's not all about us. If it is, then we have the wrong motivation in our hearts and our minds, the wrong focus. This week as I was preparing for this message, I just ran across a little poem. wasn't really even looking for it. But it talks about how we can be self-centered people. And it says, I had a little tea party this afternoon at three. It was very small, three guests in all, just I, myself, and me. Myself ate all the sandwiches while I drank up the tea was I who ate the pie and passed the cake to me. You, you see, if we aren't careful, like the disciples, everything in this life can be about me, myself, and I. We live in a very selfish, self-centered world. Can I get an amen this morning? All you have to do is turn on your television and you will find out that there is something out there that you never even worried about, but now they're telling you, you must have it. You are coming up short because you don't have this prize knife that will cut through anything. Why, why do you even need to cut through uh, some of those things that they're showing you? They will tell you that you don't have a big enough car, a, a, a good enough house. They'll tell you all of these things to get you to think that you need it and that you don't have enough. You see, the world, why does the world even do that? Can I tell you, they are motivated by greed because they want you to buy something you don't even need. They want you to buy something that will take you down. They want you to buy something that will indebt you and not free you up. And I, didn't, I don't know who that was for, but that was new. That was for somebody else. You see, we can but be motivated by the me, myself, and I within us. And Jesus was showing them that his purpose, that his motivation, that his reason for coming was one, and it was to save the lost. It was to reach out to a world that did not know God as their Savior. And so Jesus begins to tell this parable about a man who had a hundred sheep, and one of them strays from the fold. He has one hundred sheep and we understand that we are representative of this shepherd can I can I tell you that that you have people in your life that you are to shepherd who do not know Jesus Christ 
It may be as simple as your family, your four or your five, but you are called to shepherd those people. And we see that this man had 100 sheep. And I can imagine that as he's going about his day, he's feeding the sheep, he's walking the sheep, he's making sure that the sheep have water. And it begins to count 80, 85, 90, 95, 98, 99. Wait a minute, one is missing. Which one that you are called to shepherd is missing? Which one? You see, God has called us to shepherd others to know Jesus Christ. And and we see that this shepherd had 99 out of 100. Now, that seems like a pretty good average to me. I've taken some master's classes in theology, and I would be happy to get 99 out of 100. And it seems illogical to us in the natural that this man would leave the 99 to go find the one. But, oh, my friends, what if you were the one? The one who was lost and undone, as the Scripture talks about. The one who was separated from the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I believe we have to put ourselves in in the sheep's place and, and sheep don't get lost on purpose. Come on, help me out this morning. You see, sometimes sheep just wander away. They just stray. They just have their head down and they're looking for their next bite to eat, their next sustenance, and they get separated from the fold. And we like people are like sheep and sometimes we never mean to stray but we do and we find ourselves lost and away from the cross and we find ourselves away from the house of God and we're desperate and we're lost. But the good news is this morning is that we have a good shepherd who recognizes that one is missing. He wasn't abandoning the 99. This is the good news of the kingdom. That once you have given your heart and life to Christ, that God will take care of you. That His Holy Spirit will surround you. That the Holy Spirit will convict you when you go to do wrong. And He will convict you and He will convince you to do good. You see, the Holy Spirit is your protector and He'll be beside you. And so those 99 were in no danger because they were in the kingdom of heaven. But the one, but the one was lost. The one didn't know the way. Jesus had said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So this parable, one is lost. One is undone. So why am I preaching about this this morning? Because if we don't watch it, we can become like the disciples. And our motivation and our focus can become skewed like the disciples. We can become very self-centered. And can I tell you that self-centeredness rubs off. Even in churches, if we don't watch it, the church will be more about those who sit inside the church on Sunday morning than those outside who do not know Christ as their Savior. If we don't watch it, then everything that we are doing is just for the church. Now, we need to minister to those who are in the church. We need to train up people so that they know how to be witnesses. We need to train up people so they know how to flow in the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, I myself uh, and, and other ministers in the house need to train up people and, and need to give people opportunity to use the abilities and the skills and the things that God has given to them. That's still the internal workings of the church works. But we must have a focus that is not inside the four walls but outside the four walls to reach the people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our central focus is not inside the four walls but outside of it. And if we don't watch it, we'll become the opposite of that. Dr. Kermit Long said, with all of our education in the church, all of our fine buildings, we are doing less to win the lost than our forefathers who were untrained and unskilled. We are no longer fishers of men, but keepers of aquariums. And we spend most of our time swapping fish from each other's bowls. Now, my wife told me this would be a bad idea, but I wanted to do it. I wanted to get two aquariums up here, and I wanted to have goldfish in them, and I just wanted to take that little scoop and just scoop one to the other until one pond was, one aquarium was empty and the other one was full. But the good news this morning is that there has been no harming of fish in the filming of this sermon. <laughs> if we don't watch it, our concern is about growth numerically and not growth spiritually if we don't watch it our concern can be about only tending to the needs of the people within the four walls who already know Christ as their savior if we are not careful then all we are doing is just moving people from one place to another can I tell you that sometimes God sends people from another church to us he does that and I'm thankful because I have prayed for workers and I have prayed for God to send people who would capture the vision of the house. But if our only focus is to steal from other churches, then we're not growing. The kingdom of God is not growing. We must be concerned about those fish that have never been caught before. You see, we must win the lost at at any cost. We must preach that gospel of Christ that is the power of God to salvation. What are we really doing if we're not preaching the gospel? If we're not assisting in bringing people to Christ? What is our motivation? Why do we come to church on the corner of Douglas and Depot Street on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and 11? Why do we meet each week? Why do we give of our talent and our time and our treasure? Why do we have outreach events which can tire everybody out? Why do we do all of those things? Why do we try to extend our ministry to every age group, every nationality, every tongue, every tribe, as the Bible tells us? Why do we do that? Because the lost matters. They matter. Thinking about... When I came to know Jesus, I was only seven years old. At seven, I still understood that I needed Christ in my life. I still understood that I had sin. I don't know what that sin was now when I look back at it, 
but I had sin in my life, and I asked the Lord and thanked God for children's ministry and for my mom being a part of that ministry, and I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior at seven years old. Oh, thank God that we have the opportunity and the focus upon the lost. Amen. At nine, I was filled with the Holy Spirit. Thank God for youth camps. Thank God for a people who took of their time and their talent and their treasure to make an opportunity for me to come and to grow in uh, my salvation and to grow uh, in, in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for all of that. Seeking the lost is our number one priority. Second Peter 3.9 tells us that Jesus does not want anyone to perish, that he wants all to reach uh, uh, to come to repentance and to know Him as their Lord and Savior. You see, you don't hear this preached much, but I'm called to preach, so I'll just preach it. There is a real heaven and there is a real hell. And hell is a motivator so that we will preach the gospel so that people will not go there. It is a real place of torment, the Bible tells us. And we don't hear about that. We only hear about heaven. Can I tell you, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you have not committed your life to Him, then there is a hell that is reserved for only those who don't know the Lord. It's true. It got real quiet, didn't it? It's the truth. And the Bible tells us that the truth will make us free. So that is our motivation so that people will not go to a, a hell that was not prepared for them. Romans 10, 14 says, How then can they call on one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? It is the gospel that finds the lost. And it is you and I who must preach the gospel. Found people, find people. You say that again. Found people, find people. And so, who in your life, what person is on your mind right now? What person doesn't know the Lord? You see, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that we are instructed to prepare ourselves. Are you prepared to give the gospel to those who don't know it? That we are to prepare ourselves to give an answer about the reason for the hope that is in us. Do you have hope in your life? Uh, do you, you, you have a reason to live. You have a reason to have hope. I don't care if you are poor. I don't care if you don't know where your next meal is coming from. It does not matter as long as you have Jesus. There is a hope in your life. I can tell you that no matter how poor you are in this life, how destitute, no matter where you are, my friend, that if you have Jesus, that you have a treasure in your life. And if you have Jesus, you can know that you have an eternal home in heaven. So no matter how bad it gets here, and it's getting bad, folks, our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Jesus. The Bible tells us that 
one day that he will come back for his bride. That those who have died and are in the grave will be resurrected. That we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet all of them in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. My friends, that is our hope. That is the reason why we can smile when we have no money. That is the reason why we can go about in this world and and have a smile upon our face and know that we are okay with God because of that hope in Christ. It's a blessed hope. It's the hope of knowing where our eternity will be spent. So just for a moment, if you will give me just a few more moments, I want to look at a couple of insights from this parable. First of all, God places a great value upon the lost. He values the one. He values you, my friend. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you are not... uh, uh, By yourself, you are not alone. He desires for you to come to know Him. He cares about the one. He cares about us. He places a great value upon the lost. He knew that one sheep was missing. And we must do the same. Do we notice when one isn't here? Do we notice when one that we have been called to shepherd are not here do we notice that the one has gone astray and when the when he found the one he was happy that he had found him he didn't beat the sheep he didn't embarrass the sheep in front of others no he had an individual love for that sheep every week we have an usher or a deacon or someone count as people come in. Not so we can brag about how many people were here, but because it matters. People, we count people because people count and people matter. And so this this shepherd knew the value of the one. We must understand the value of people, must understand the value of the lost. It was a patient love. Somebody say, oh, I need patience. It was a patient love. He didn't grab that sheep by the nap of the neck and drag it in front of the other sheep and bring it home. But the Bible tells us in another place where this same parable is that he lovingly picked it up and put it upon his shoulders and he carried it back to the fold. He cares about the one. He loves, and it is a patient kind of love. It is a seeking kind of love. Aren't you glad that the Lord sought after you, that the Lord found you, that the Lord sought after you and and tried to get you to come to Him before you even wanted to? He is a seeking God, a God who seeks after us, a rejoicing God. And I tell you that the Bible tells us that when one comes back into the kingdom of God, that heaven rejoices, that the angels rejoice. We need to rejoice when people come back to the Lord. Amen? Not say, hmm, I wonder how long that's going to last. Not criticize. Not shy away from them because of what they used to be. 
You see, we need to love people where they are. Not because they're perfect, not because uh, they've got everything right. No, uh, when we came to the Lord, we didn't have it all right. Not, if not for the grace and the mercy of God, we would be in the same situation. So we must rejoice when people come back to the Lord. Let's be happy about it. I'll leave you with this last one. And I tell you that this world is not a safe place. It's not a safe place to be without Jesus. The shepherd went after that one because he knew that there was an enemy. Now for the sheep, the enemy was a wolf or maybe a bear. But for you and I, for people, the enemy is Satan. And the Bible tells us that he comes to steal he comes to kill. He comes to destroy. We must get people and, and worry about them and pray for them and bring them in because they are in danger. Can I finish that verse? Satan come to steal, kill, and destroy, but Christ came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. When we love people, we care about the one. You might not like it, but I've already prayed this over, over you. I'm asking God to give you a burden for the lost. I've already asked God to not let you do too much sleeping, but to be concerned about the lost. I believe that God has placed a, a person in your heart that you are supposed to minister to and that you're supposed to win to Christ. And so today, and I don't pray that too often, I'm praying for God to burden you for the lost. That you'll not be satisfied until you reach that one. That's the heart of God. That's the motivation. That is the focus that Jesus had.